Welcome to PMA Takes on Tech, the podcast that explores the problems, solutions, people, and ideas that are shaping the future of the produce industry. I'm your host, Bonnie Estes, Vice President of Technology for the Produce Marketing Association, and I've spent years in the ag tech sector. So I can attest, it's hard to navigate this ever-changing world in developing and adopting new solutions to industry problems. Thanks for joining us and for allowing us to serve as your guide to the new world of produce and technology. My goal of the podcast is to outline a problem in the produce industry and then discuss several possible solutions that can be deployed today. This season of PMA Takes on Tech is brought to you by Plenty. Plenty is an indoor vertical farm that sustainably grows produce using less water and land than traditional farming and no pesticides or GMOs. The farm is able to grow peak season, flavorful food year round and deliver fresh produce to its retail partners daily. Plenty's proprietary towers and intelligent platform make it the only vertical farm that can grow multiple crops with consistently superior flavors and yield. Today's conversation is with Dana Worth, Senior Vice President at Plenty. I originally knew Dana from Impossible Foods, where he spent nearly six years as VP of Sales and in Business Operations. Dana is a wealth of information on commercializing products in mission-driven companies in high growth stages. We talk about the push and pull of retailers and consumers for healthy, nutritious food. Let's jump into the conversation with Dana on his role at Plenty and some learnings from Impossible Foods. So I run our sales, marketing, and comms teams here at Plenty. Collectively, we call that the commercial team. Um, I have been at the company since January of 2021, so about 11 11 months as of now. And it's been a really fun and exciting time uh, so far. I joined Plenty after spending almost six years at Impossible Foods, just down the road here in California. Um, At Impossible Foods, I joined in 2015 as an early commercial hire and uh, has spent a lot of time focused on how to bring our first product there, the Impossible Burger, to market. So when I joined Impossible in 2015, we were still about a year and a half from launching uh, at David Chang's restaurant, Momofuku, in in New York City in uh, July of 2016. Um, And I I helped design that launch, uh, build the commercial team. When I first started, it was me. I did everything from answering uh, all the customer service emails in the inbox to um, going on sales calls with a... uh, Griddle that we'd bought at Walmart and kind of you know dragged down the street behind us um, to you know thinking about securing our first social media Instagram handle, um, all the way up through uh, leading the deals with Burger King and Starbucks, uh, which are still standing today for the Impossible Whopper and the Impossible Breakfast Sandwich. Um, my interest in the industry really started with Impossible Foods. I um, had had very little exposure to food and ag prior to Impossible Foods. I'd been um, I'd been working uh, in some healthcare. Uh, work. I've been working in emerging markets. I've been working in uh, fintech, most recently with PayPal. But when I met uh, Pat Brown and the team over at Impossible, I became really interested in how important the food system uh, is to the planet and people who live on it. And as I've learned more and more about the food system, I've really become convinced that uh, it's pretty much the closest thing we have to a silver bullet to solve many of the problems facing the planet uh, and the people who live here. Uh, or put conversely, actually, one of the things that can be uh, 
most negatively impactful to the planet if we don't address some of those issues. Um, you know, the way I think about it is the food system, um, you know, there are six to 7 billion people who are consumers into the system every day, um, for many people, multiple times a day. There's another one to 2 billion people who are producers into the system every single day. Um, it obviously impacts our environment. It impacts human health, impacts the animals who live on this planet as well. And I can't think of a single system. The energy system doesn't do that. The healthcare system, the education system. I can't think of a single system that impacts so many human beings uh, every day. And, and what's interesting to me about that is obviously the chance to have an impact, a positive impact on the world. So from a mission standpoint, both Impossible Foods and Plenty are mission-focused, mission-first companies. Mm -hmm. But also as a business person, I mean, what, a, what an incredible place to build a business, right? How often do you have the, the chance to access every human being on the planet as a potential customer? Not many businesses can can claim that uh, you know total addressable market as they as they say. Uh, it's been really interesting watching since 2015 when I entered into the industry, just how um, how much focus has come into the industry. Obviously, we all see the headlines about the capital that's been invested uh, and how that's been going up, up, up over recent years. Uh, I'm of the mind that that's still we're still massively underinvesting in the industry, uh, given the the aspects I just mentioned. Given how many people our consumers, how many people are producers and how big the challenges are. Uh, so I'm a, I'm sort of a big tenter on this. I believe that it's going to take many, many companies, many, many entrepreneurs, many, many solutions uh, to get to where we need to go because the the scale of the challenge is, is so great. Yeah, that's, it's so true. And I think, like you said, working for both those companies and, and having an impact, those are two really impactful areas. Um, so indoor ag is playing an increasingly incremental role in our fresh produce supply. What are the key factors driving this? And is this a fad, as some people think, um, a very well-invested fad, mm -hmm. <laughs> or is it here to stay? I think there's two, uh, as, as with any of these trends, there's kind of two sides to this. Um, one is the push and the other is the pull. So I'll start with the pull, which is the consumer side. You know, consumers aren't out there saying we want indoor ag, right? They, um, they, most people probably don't even know, uh, know how their food is grown today, uh, let alone think about you know, the differences between indoor and outdoor and, and all the variations thereof. Um, but consumers have been you know, voting very strongly over the last uh, a couple of decades that they do care about how their food is made, even if they don't fully understand it, right? The, the um, growth and prominence of organic is a perfect example of consumers caring, right? And consumers voting their dollars on, on how they care. I, you know, my belief is they care about things, uh, obviously taste, right? We all know that taste is number one. That being said, everything in the grocery store is designed to be tasty for the most part. Um, Doritos are tasty. Ice cream is tasty. Uh, there's lots of things that are tasty. So saying that, uh, I think of taste as a necessary but not sufficient condition. You know, if mm -hmm. you're not tasty, that's going to be a problem. But just because you're tasty doesn't mean that you are um, that you're going to succeed. Um, the second, you know, really big one, I think, especially in the in the produce space, is cleanliness. And I think there's a there's kind of a lurking uh, unknown in consumers' minds about cleanliness. So what does that mean? Like, what? Why are some things? no need to wash, but some are triple washed and some I have to wash at home. And some like, what is, there's kind of a, um, I think, a, like I said, a lurking belief of like, I'm not quite sure what exactly is on my produce. And do you think um, that's tied to food safety, like staying safe with the food that you eat, or is it more dirt or is it more insecticides or is it all those things? Yeah, I think it probably doesn't, for most consumers, doesn't break down into any particular components of more of a, uh, this, you know, 
dirty is bad, right? I'm yeah. not quite sure how it's bad. It could be as bad as, oh my gosh, I could end up sick. And I see these, you know, certainly people are aware of recalls, but it could be as, it could be as minor as, you know, I, this, this looks dirty, right? Even if it's completely, uh, completely harmless. Um, the other thing is, you know, I th- think it, the way I think about it is produce in some ways um, is not a great consumer experience, right? If you were to just step back and think about produce as a product, um, where else in the grocery store do you have things that when you get them home, you could have, you know, a third or half the pack not be what it was represented to be, right? It could be rotten. It could be moldy. It could be um, something you didn't think you were buying. Uh-huh. You also, depending on what time of year you buy it, what time of week you buy it, depending on the store you buy it at, you can get a completely different product, right? A strawberry is not a strawberry. A strawberry can be many different things depending on uh, when and where you buy it. Um, and a product that you often end up throwing a large amount away uh, because it goes bad or uh, goes bad in your fridge. If you think about that in the, the context of the grocery store, like if Cheerios had those that value proposition, it would be a terrible product, right? Like, hey, by the by the way, Cheerios are different depending on where you get them and what time of year you get them. Oftentimes they go bad and you don't know exactly what they're going to taste like before you open the packet. Um, people wouldn't buy that product. And I actually think it's a testimony to how important produce is in people's lives that people continue to buy produce, even despite all the downsides that come along with that, with that product. And so that's that's the framework I use for thinking about what can any production system, whether it's indoor ag or otherwise, what are the what are the um, solutions we can bring to the consumer? It's mm-hmm. about making it a more reliable product. It's about making it a, a cleaner, you know, put cleaner in quotes, but a cleaner product um, in consumers' minds. About making it a more nutritious product, making it something that I can, I, I can get what I'm expecting to get. So, how do you think um, what Plenty is doing in your technology can solve that issue, especially around strawberries? Since I know you're working on strawberries. Yeah. So, I think you know the the obvious um, the obvious one of the obvious solutions here is by being able to provide a consistent environment and being able to control all the knobs, um, like we can at Plenty. We can we can produce uh, a great strawberry. We believe in conjunction with our partners at Driscoll's year round. Um, and it's always a great day, as we like to say, it's always a great day in Watsonville inside a Plenty Farm. Um, so as some of your listeners may know, we've been, uh, we have a publicly announced partnership with Driscoll's where uh, we're working with uh, their world-class genetics, as well as our world-class indoor environment uh, with the goal of producing really game-changing uh, strawberries. Uh, so that's, that's, an, that's an area, not the only area, but certainly an area where uh, indoor ag, to your original question, I think can really deliver some big gains. And are you publicly making any prediction of when I may have plenty strawberries in my refrigerator? I am not publicly making any predictions about, <laughs> about plenty of strawberries, but we will get you some at some point. Fun. <laughs> Good. I'm looking forward to that. So how can companies um, like Plenty increase awareness uh, about CEA among retailers of how it is different from organic or non-GMO or many of the other different types of categories? Yeah, I think that's a great point and actually comes back to the, the push side. So we were talking about the pull from the consumer, the push from the retailer, you know, the, in the long run, the retailer's interests align with the consumer's interests. Um, but in the short and medium run, that's not always the case. Um, and especially right now with all the um, supply chain challenges that retailers have had, labor challenges retailers have had, and general COVID challenges retailers have had over the last year and a half, they've got their hands full for sure. Um, and so they are um, oftentimes solving for uh, related but but um, somewhat different things. So uh, you know we hear from a lot of retailers that uh, reducing recalls 
is would be a huge benefit to them. Um, just that is one of the biggest things that um, disrupts their produce department uh, on a what seemingly consistent basis. That is it's a huge pain point for them. We also hear you know consistency, just being able to uh, know when I'm going to have product, know when I'm going to be able to stock my shelves. Right, they're trying to run a business. They've got a lot of different pieces to manage, and having something that's so volatile um, makes it really challenging to run that business. I've also heard from most produce managers that that's why they love produce, by the way, that they love, they went into that business because they love the dynamic nature of it. Um, but that is a, it's a constant struggle that they're, they're trying to, trying to, trying to manage. The other thing we're hearing from retailers is that they are, um, they want to ensure their supply going forward. So everyone is thinking about how do I make sure that, um, whether it's supply chain difficulties, whether it's climate related pressures on the field, they want to make sure that obviously they're going to be able to keep their shelf stocked. Um, and uh, as they think towards the future, you know, they're, they're looking at controlled environment or indoor agriculture as a way to make sure that they have consistent access to the products that they know their consumers want. So that's what we're hearing from retailers. What's interesting is there's, I think, a, a shared understanding between retailers and other indoor folks or indoor folks that we do need to um, figure out how to talk to to the consumer about this. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I'll use an analogy from my, my impossible days, you know, until impossible and beyond really started coming out with some of the more uh, innovative products that we debuted in the mid uh, 2010. So in kind of 2015, 2016, 2017, uh, everything was a veggie burger, right? Like if you ever had a Dr. Prager's or a, a Morningstar burger, those were, it was a veggie burger. That was the, the term. That's what I grew up with. Um, around the time that impossible and beyond started releasing their products, plant-based became a term that was well became better known by consumers to the point now when you walk into many uh, retail grocers, you'll see plant-based as a section heading. And the interesting thing about plant-based is you know, plant-based has a lot of positive connotations. So if you were to walk out and grab a consumer out of a grocery store and say, what is plant-based? They'll say, oh, it's, it's probably better for you, better for the environment. Um, something that I try to do, you know, I, I'm doing my part to try to make you know, my life or the planet's life healthier. And that was that became kind of a code word, a short code for consumers in a complex grocery store in a way to make decisions. And we haven't had that moment yet for uh, for indoor or CEA. Neither of those terms mean anything to a consumer. CEA in particular is a pretty terrible consumer term. It is. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, you know, one of the things that I think both retailers and, you know, and uh, I certainly recognize, I would imagine other indoor producers recognize is the need to um, have what I think of as our plant-based moment. Like, what is the what is the term that we can um, that that we can put out into the world that neatly summarizes the value and the benefits to the consumer, um, as opposed to a description of the production method, which is not particularly useful. You know, CEA or indoor is not particularly useful uh, to the consumer. And you know, organic is an interesting case study where it was a description of a production method that has come to mean something to the consumer. Um, not because they're necessarily thinking there's a particular process, right? But they, they does have this, it is a term that has this, um, this uh, kind of set of benefits behind it that uh, consumer, you know, I'm sure every consumer thinks about it a little differently. We know many consumers don't think about it correctly, but right. that's, that's not necessarily important. They think of it as this, this set of benefits that they can count on when they are in the store. Um, and we haven't had that moment yet for uh, for what we do. And it's going to be a big part of my focus uh, going forward. And I would, I would invite others in the industry to to join me as well. I think it benefits everyone, you know, going back to what I said in the beginning, the challenges we face 
uh, around the food and ag system are too too big to be tackled by any one company alone. So what would that mean to a consumer? Like if you could communicate, I'm, you know, we're growing this indoors or we're growing this vertically, um, what, and the consumer would go, oh, that means these benefits. So, so what kind of benefits are you trying to communicate to them that they would think I want, I want to buy this because of all the, you know, this bucket of benefits? Yeah, it, go, it goes back to what I was saying about uh, the ways in which produce is kind of a broken, broken product. Um, so it would be, um, you, you're going to get what it says on the label. Meaning uh, if it says delicious strawberries, they're delicious strawberries. Um, you're going to get something that is clean, right? So if it's no need to wash, it truly is no need to wash. And it's not going to, um, it's not going to be, uh, you know, I can count on it being clean. And I think being clean, you know, we hold ourselves to a standard, for example, we say no pesticides on our, on our product. Um, we, cause we believe actually a lot of what consumers want when they're thinking about clean is, is no pesticides. And incorrectly, you know, uh, of course, right? Like pesticides are are the thing that most consumers should be uh, should be worried about. Um, so that's a big part of it. And then uh, I think the consistency as well. So knowing that and it's related to you know getting what it says on the label, but it's, it's a slightly different thing. Knowing that um, I can buy this product fifty two weeks a year, and I'm going to get something that I you know I or my kids will enjoy. I think for, for me, your market research of one here um, is that it's um, just how long it lasts in the shelf life. And then I know mm -hmm. that, you know, whatever it says on the label, um, it it's going to last at least till that date mm -hmm. and probably longer. And it's going to last longer than a couple of days after I buy it, no matter what. So, um, so I think for me, that's a huge benefit. And I, I think that's one thing that... Um, uh, people who grow other ways are going to need to step up a little bit to meet that demand of consumers that, you know, we just have longer shelf life, especially in supply chains, the way that they are. Yeah. And that's a, it's a great point. And obviously with, uh, with indoor, there's a, there's a few ways we can address that, you know, um, you know, putting production closer to consumption is the obvious mm -hmm. one. Um, but even more minor things like when we, because of how we harvest, we're able to go from harvest into a cold tunnel you know, into refrigeration within seconds, not, days, not hours, not days, um, not that anyone's going days, but not hours. Right. And, um, in doing so we're able to kind of, uh, freeze the, the, you know, the product in time and get it out, uh, to consumers faster. So, uh, there's a few, you know, there's the obvious one of, of location and, and food miles, but there's also some other things that, that you can do when you have such tight control over your system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how does this work? You think, um, as far as where it fits both in how it works in cannibalizing outdoor growing. And then I've heard people talk about it. I heard one um, retailer say, well, I only have room on my shelf for, you know, these leafy greens in a package for a certain amount. And so I'm going to take, I'm going to put indoor grown in there and I'm going to get rid of organic. I'm not going to carry organic anymore. So just when you think about, um, I think my view right now is the pie is continuing to kind of get bigger. Mm -hmm. You know, we've got great products and the pie is going to get bigger, but that can't go on forever. So at some point in the retailer and the consumer is going to have to make a decision of like, what do I buy? And then how does that affect organic and then outdoor growing? How do you kind of see it shaking out going forward? Yeah. I think if you zoom out and think about the retailer's store, obviously shelf space is there. It's the premium, but it's a little more complicated in produce because refrigerated shelf space is actually the premium, you know, the premium that we're, we're all trading. Um, if you listen to every retailer's, every public retailer's earnings calls, strategy days, et cetera, 
fresh, 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 right? Fresh is their number one priority. Um, fresh is what brings continues to bring consumers into the store. I, uh, I've joked a few times that you know, fresh is to is to retail brick and mortar retail what ESPN is to cable. Right? <laughs> it's the reason it's the reason why you keep your cable subscription. It's the reason why people keep going into stores. You know, I believe in a future where we're gonna you know, if you're not already, most people will be buying their toilet paper and their paper towels online, um, and that they're gonna continue to go into the store for things you know for meat, fish, and produce. And, uh, and retailers have all know this, obviously, that's why they talk about it with their investors. That's why they're making massive investments in the fresh space. And so, and to put a finer point on your, on about growing the pie, sure, but literally actually physically talking about growing the sections, um, in the store, right. Growing the section, growing the perimeter, growing the refrigerated space in the stores, right. G- doing all that to make sure they've got room to, um, to bring more fresh in. Uh, so there's. I think that's a very real thing and it aligns very well with, with retailer strategies right now. There's also within the, within the refrigerated fresh ca- uh, cases, there's, it's not just produce that's in there, right? So there's trade-offs with other, um, other products. So you can, you, even within the given set space you have today, there, you can expand produce relative to the other uh, fresh refrigerated items. Um, and then there's, of course, as you mentioned, uh, trade-offs within the fresh, you know, within a given set of, of fresh produce. Um, I think that there's, you know, what's interesting about that is the, at least the way we think about it at Plenty is, you know, we, uh, you know, we can help partner with existing field growers. You know, we were down, um, you and I were both down at Western Growers Association a couple of weeks ago. Um, and, you know, we were there looking to, you know, to make friends, not enemies. Like we, we believe that we can, uh, we can partner with existing growers to help them grow in this way, because we believe that this is, is the way forward. And so while you might see you know, when it gets down to the fine point, might see cannibalization again after the third kind of third layer down here. But you might see cannibalization between um, outdoor and indoor grown products. Behind that, you might see, and we believe you will see, outdoor growers investing in indoor grown techniques. Um, and so, is that it? May not be cannibalization from the producer side. It may be uh, just a trade up for consumers to uh, to a product that we believe brings more, you know, more benefits to the consumer than what they're what they're getting today. Yeah. I think it may end up being just kind of a portfolio of different ways to grow. Um, so I, you know, I consider myself a producer. I produce these kinds of products, leafy greens or others, and I do it outside here. I do it inside here. Mm -hmm. So it's just kind of risk mitigation, especially with climate change, I think. And here in California, as we worry more and more about water availability, um, I, I think it's smart for the outdoor growers to say, do I need to have a risk portfolio, risk adjusted portfolio of the way that I grow things? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, to the extent that, um, the folks who are listening to this podcast are outdoor growers. Those are conversations that um, we're already having and are you know eager to have more of. So I would I'd love to uh, love to include anyone who's interested in learning more. Great, great. So one of the things that you've done in your role, um, which I think was uh, a bit of a new role when you came, was mm-hmm. uh, building relationships with retailers and really looking at uh, as plenty grows and you grow your your. Um, start open the farm in Compton and you start some other farms, just really having those different retailers um, that are in different parts of the country and kind of how do you work with them? So what's that been like for you? And, and um, when you walk in to talk to retailers new, you know, do you have to explain everything or do do they kind of know what's going on? Yeah. uh, It's been, it's been really great. I mean, it's probably my favorite part of the job is spending time with our customers. Um, 
And in this case, it's retailers at, you know, at Impossible. I focus mostly on food service operators uh, here at Plenty. I've been working mostly with retailers. Um, I was lucky uh, to be uh, introduced as I came into our partners at Safeway Albertsons. Uh, mm-hmm. So Plenty has a publicly announced uh, deal we did back in 2019 uh, with the, sorry, 2020 rather, uh, with uh, Safeway Albertsons to uh, be partners in our California expansion once the Compton Farm is up and running. And so those were some relationships that were that were already built. Um, but we've continued to have really productive conversations, both with retailers here in California, uh, as well as across the country. And like I said, I enjoy it because I think that, um, you know, there are, there are visionaries within all of these retailers who are thinking about the future and thinking about um, how to move their business uh, to the next level. And connecting with those people is really gratifying uh, because, you know, it's like you find that person who sees the world in the same way that you do. And when you, when you have a partner like that, you can actually create a ton of value. And so I'll give an example, like, um, when you when you connect with the person who also says yes, we need to figure out what the plant based quote unquote moment is for this industry. How do we communicate this to the to the retailer or to the consumer? Well, now you have all the tools in place, right? You have the retailer who has control over their shelves. You have us as the producer who has control over how we grow. And together, if we have we have a shared mission to communicate communicate to the consumer, well, wow, now we can do a whole lot. Um, so I've enjoyed uh, building those relationships. I view, you know, as as um, you can probably tell, I view them as um, partnerships where we're like we've learned a lot uh, as plenty in the last eight years building this company. Um, we have obviously points of view on the future and where the industry is going, and the opportunity to share those points of views with with retailers is fantastic. Um, one of the most fun things to do is actually to bring folks up to our research facility in Laramie, Wyoming. Mm-hmm. So we have uh, we in the summer, that. right? <laughs> I'll go whenever they want to go. I, I'm an East Coaster originally, and I miss winter sometimes. So, uh, yeah. well, you can get that in Laramie. <laughs> yeah, it was it was uh, 13 degrees last time I was there uh, last week. So I enjoy uh, you know we we have about, uh, just over 60 people there, um, full time R and D, plant science, um, about just over a dozen PhDs, uh, and you know the first time I went, I joked it was kind of like Santa's workshop. We've got you know, a bunch of different production environments where we're testing. And it's really where a lot of the, it's the core of our plant science uh, work that happens there. Um, Obviously located there because Nate Story, our co-founder, did all of his graduate work at University of Wyoming. We still have a really good, strong set of folks coming out of the university there. Um, And I think when we we bring retailers there, uh, it often helps connect the dots for how what we're doing is really technology and innovation based. And we've made this massive investment in, in technology uh, that will benefit them, right? Like we've made that, that investment and the retailers get to reap the, get to reap the rewards of it. Um, and getting to tell that story is really exciting. Yeah, I bet that's really cool to take people who work in produce and and see the product all day to a, a place. I haven't been to Laramie. I've seen a lot of your research in South San Francisco, but um, it, that must be really enlightening to them, you know, because it, it looks so different than Salinas, um, which is great in its own way, but this is something they haven't seen before. So that must be very fun. Yeah, it's um, getting kind of why I still get wide eyed at, you know, then thinking about all the different knobs you can turn, all the different you know, dials you can turn when you have that degree of control. Um, you know, how much more light can you put into the system? What are the what are um, cultivars that we can grow, for example, that may have been discarded uh, because they weren't fit for purpose outdoors? And so there's all sorts of fun things you can do uh, when you uh, when you have these kinds of environments. You had mentioned um, food service when you're talking about impossible. 
are you working in food service at all with Plenty? Are you trying to supply that part of that segment? We are currently in retail. So the way that I think about things today is um, we are currently in about 50 retailers here in Northern California. That is supplied entirely out of our South San Francisco farm, uh, which is sold out and, and has been for some time. Um, that is kind of partially an R&D farm and partially a commercial farm. Um, really, our big expansion is coming when we open the Compton facility next year uh, down in Southern California. That'll be our big debut uh, from a... Um, you know, from a brand and commercial standpoint. And uh, we, uh, I, I do think there's a case uh, for the product in food service. As, as, as you mentioned, I was, uh, I spent quite a bit of time in food service in my days at Impossible. Um, and I think there's a case for the same reason there's a case in retail. Um, consumers, you know, care about uh, how the product, how their product is made. They care about quality. And those things are all very much, uh, you know, very much things that you can communicate in a food service environment. And, um, and I, I think food food service operators, at least certain food service operators, um, would be very interested. Mm-hmm. I think so too. So there's been a big shift in consumer behavior over the last 12 months or so. What are consumers craving in a post-pandemic world, and how can retailers ensure they're delivering the demand for fresher produce to consumers? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, there's obviously a, a bit of a roller coaster and not just the, the initial COVID induced pieces, but the subsequent supply chain challenges. Um, one of the things, you know, my, my view is that uh, some of these habits will stick, um, but, but cre- people are creatures of habit, <laughs> meaning uh, a lot of the, a lot of what people move to um, will eventually revert. Um, the things that I think will stick are, I do believe that the um, cooking at home lessons that people were forced to teach themselves mm. um, will have enduring will have enduring ramifications. Um, so whether that means uh, more meals at home or just higher quality ingredients in meals at home, I think that we'll see that um, in treating that meal more like a, not treating it like a restaurant experience, but treating it more like a, um, or being able to have a premium experience at home, I guess is how I would think about it. And that'll obviously have positive ramifications for, um, for cart size uh, and ring in, in store. Um, so I think that's one. I like I said before. I do think that for staples, people um, you know will will very much continue to move white goods you know onto your recurring purchases on Amazon or elsewhere, um, and not need to go to the store. Um, but I think that the you know the folks who did move over for for fresh certainly some of them will stay doing you know online grocery for fresh. But that um, there's there's going to be a certain amount of returning to the store. I mean, we already saw it. A certain amount of returning to the store. Um, when it's safe to do so, um, just because people value that that fresh experience. And, and by the way, the brick and mortar retailers um, know this, right? And so they're innovating, as I mentioned before, they're innovating on this fresh experience to make it an attractive place uh, to come. Yeah, I've seen some um, when I was at CES, I think it was a couple of years ago, um, and they were showing like the grocery store of the future where everything that now is in the center of the store is upstairs. And so they have it upstairs and it's all managed by robots where, you know, you go in and you place the order for all those things and then you pick all your produce and then you go to the checkout and, and your, your toilet paper and your razor blades and, and paper tiles are already packed. And so just have the store, you know, be this beautiful place of, you know, flowers and produce (laughs) and the rest of the stuff's upstairs. And, and And discovery, right. The other, you know, when I think about the value that um, that brick and mortar retailer has, it's twofold. It's it's discovery, so it's very hard to discover new things online. Um, yeah, meaning like it's just, you don't have the same ability to browse, right? Of course, you can if you're really 
dogged and diligent, but it's, it doesn't have quite the same experience of, oh, there's a cheese that I um, you know, had never bought before, but it looks interesting, right? That's, that's an experience that I have when I'm in, you know, in the grocery store. Um, and then it's immediacy, right? It's, um, okay, I need this thing today. I need it now. Um, the second one though is being, you know, could potentially be eroded by some of the, um, both the fast grocery delivery and the ultra fast grocery delivery that is just now expanding in the U S. Um, so I, you know, again, retailers, retailers, uh, I think know this and they, um, are really focusing on that fresh experience in store. Yeah. Well, my last question, and you've talked about this a little bit, but you and I first met when you were at Possible in, at Impossible Foods, and um, I was doing some work there as well. And so it's it's interesting. I mean, it's kind of a Silicon Valley, you know, wonder story that you've worked for these two really amazing companies that um, have fast growth curves and are are kind of market definers. So, can you talk a little bit more about what some of the parallels are and what are some of the differences and and some of the things that you've learned and in, in working for two companies like this? Yeah, um, it's been I've been really lucky to work with some incredible people and on some incredible ideas. Uh, for me, it comes back to the mission. Um, the reason why. I'm interested in this space in the first place is it's the, as I said, it's the place where I think you have the, the biggest ability to make the biggest change for the most amount of people on the planet. And, you know, why not focus on the system that touches the most people every single day and has the, the biggest Delta in my, in my belief between where we are now and where we need to be or where we could be. Um, within that space that creates lots of opportunities for mission-based companies and you see them not just impossible and plenty, but, you know, many others, I advise a, a, food, a company um, that uh, called Clara that does uh, egg fermentation based egg replacements. Um, mm-hmm. And there's, you know, there's a hundred, if not a thousand others now. And I think that's, that's super exciting. The key though, for me is these companies exist for the mission, right? Like we used to say it impossible. If we could achieve the mission, you know, we would shut down the company tomorrow. The company doesn't exist for its own self-perpetuation. It exists to serve a mission. And the same thing is true for plenty. We exist to, to serve a mission. We see, um, we have a view of what the, the future world should look like, and we are all in on getting there. And then we can be done, right? And, you know, the reality is, of course, the mission is so big that it's going to be a long time yeah. before we're done. Won't be our but, lifetime, probably. <laughs> but when you work for a company like that, it really helps clarify decisions. It helps clarify, you know, why we choose A over B, why we invest in a certain way, who we hire, how we make decisions at the management team level. Um, and so that's what I'd say is shared between Impossible and Plenty is um, working for a mission-based company. And then obviously in a sector um, that, as I mentioned, I think has an incredible ability to impact our future. Um, it's also, as I mentioned before, it's really exciting to, to work with partners, whether it's partners like Driscoll's or retailer partners like Safeway Albertsons who share that, that vision for the future and finding those people who, say, yeah, I, I do believe that there's a different way that the future is going to look from today. And it's both the, it's the struggle and the, and the, the fun, right? And impossible. I, um, I did, on more than one occasion was cursed at, uh, in people's kitchens. So I went, you know, when I was in there, especially in the early days, you know, they thought I was some crazy hippie from California with a veggie burger, um, trying to ruin their kitchen. And, you know, I was told to, and not nice term to get out, to get out and go the other way. Um, but in some ways, it, it's interesting, right? When people feel that passionately about something, like, you know, you're on to, you know, you're on to an important issue. Um, and I have not been cursed at yet at plenty, thankfully. Um, but there Mickey greens may not be quite so controversial. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you, you, uh, but berries, people feel strongly about their berries. Yeah, that's um, true. 
but it's it's an opportunity you know the flip side of that is the opportunity um when as i said to partner with folks who who share that vision all across the industry and you know the ability to to see that come into fruition and so i'm almost seven years out uh at impossible and i still it still makes me smile every time i walk into a starbucks uh, and i see the impossible breakfast sandwich right there on the menu right that's something that um that we you know we brought into the world uh, and i you know uh, believe the same is, is true for plenty. Like we're going to be sitting here six, seven years from now. Um, maybe we can do it another podcast interview then. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, think, you know, looking at the farms we've built and the products that are on shelf and, you know, knowing that we, with our partners brought that into the world. Is there anything culturally, um, in addition to the, the mission of both companies and being very mission driven, anything about the culture of these companies or the management or any parallels or differences there? Yeah, I think, um, there's there's something that's really uh, invigorating about this particular stage in the company. So we're at the stage of plenty, right? We've been investing uh, for the better part of a decade in our technology and our system, and we're we're now building this farm in Compton that'll be the largest uh, indoor farm by output when it opens next year. And we're just on the verge of taking all the hard work that the engineers and the scientists have done and turning it into something, turning it into a product, turning it into a commercial enterprise, and that that particular transition point, I went through that transition at Impossible. Same thing, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars spent on upfront technology before a single product was ever in the market. That turning point is a a real kind of um, you know in the foxhole together type turning point where you are um, you know you've got a small group of people. Usually the companies are quite you know still relatively small at this stage as as plenty is, who are um, you know working really closely together to to make this happen. Um, so I, I've certainly experienced that impossible. I, we have that here at plenty where we've got, you know, a really good group of people who are here, um, because they really believe in what we're doing. And because of that, um, it's just, a, it's a, it's a great culture. Um, I love this, this piece of it. And actually, I actually think one of the biggest risks, uh, to companies as they get more successful is they, you know, they attract people who, who chase success as opposed to, uh, attract people who are interested in the process, interested in, in the, the way you get there. Um, everyone can identify this, the successes after the fact. Uh, it's more, uh, you know, I admire more and want to work more with people who uh, love the process of getting there. That's it for this episode of PMA Takes on Tech. Thanks for allowing us to serve as your guide to the new world of produce and technology. Be sure to check out all our episodes at pma.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe, and I would love to get any comments or suggestions of what you might want me to take on. For now, stay safe, eat your fruits and vegetables, and we will see you next time.